mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. everybody welcome back to the ducks unlimited podcast it's your host katie burke and today on the show i have a special guest rick milligan call and decoy collector welcome to the show rick katie i'm honored to be here thank you so you are in town let's just let everybody know why you're here i think that's the most important part to put your call collection in the museum i am yeah um i I, i'm just kind of Still, you know, floating uh, in an out-of-body experience here. <laughs> I really am. It's it's such an honor, and um, yeah, I, I've I feel like I'm on the shoulders of giants. I mean, the people that have come before me, like you know, Doug Lodermeyer and guys like Mike Lewis and Howard Harlan and Ryan Graves. I mean, these these are my contemporaries, and they're just you know, super smart guys. And um, I'm just happy to be mentioned in the same sentence with all of them. <laughs> well, I mean, some of them. He's okay. <laughs> Some of them are just okay. <laughs> we Go, won't, don't we won't name blow names. up Ryan's head too much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just to give people an idea, today is the 7th of December. So we're going to install it tomorrow on the 8th and it'll be ready to see. Let's say the 9th. It'll be ready to see. We got some work to do. Yeah, we got some work to do. So feel free. Um, I mean, this will come out later, but it'll be out and in the museum and come see it. All right. So let's, I like to, with all of my guests, to kind of go back to the very beginning. Yeah. So, well, and that, this is also fun. Like your son's here in the studio, which is kind of fun. He's probably not going to say anything. But I want to mention <laughs> this because I actually interviewed my dad on the podcast once and it was fun because I got him to say things I never would have probably heard otherwise, like, because you don't think to tell your kids this stuff. Right. So, yeah, let's go back to the very beginning, mm-hmm. how you got interested in the outdoors and hunting and just how that all came about. Was Were you introduced by your father or grandfather? Well, my son is in the studio and I think, you know, he's kind of looked at me crossways for a long time. Uh, like, what you're doing what? You're collecting what? And it's kind of all come together. But... To go back, um, yeah, my dad uh, was a was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter, and um, in fact, uh, both my parents are gone now. But um, <laughs> the story is told that they actually went pheasant hunting on their honeymoon, <laughs> much to my mother's chagrin, I'm sure. But <sighs> you wouldn't believe this if you knew my dad. But when I w- I'm the oldest of seven kids, and so when I came home from the hospital as a baby, my mom said all the guns have to go. <laughs> and now, if you knew my dad, you'd say there's no way he'd comply with that, but he did. And I don't know how many he had, but I always talked about that little 410, sweet little 410. I've tried to find it. I can't. But he and I never got to walk the fields together. And he, every once in a while, would reminisce about it and talk about it. And um, my father left this earth way too young, uh, over 37 years ago. And so it was probably, you know, I was a, just a young adult, you know, even younger than Adam here, who's in the studio with us. But 
I always had a, a fondness for it. And he, Adam, who's actually part of this story, he, um, he got into um, trap shooting and he got really good at it. And I thought he was really going to become a competitive shooter. And, and then one day he discovered this sport called lacrosse. And it's the same season. But when he was very young, he said, Dad, when are we going to do this for real? I said, what are you talking about? That's real ammunition. That's a real gun. What you, no, no, I mean birds. And so I said, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. You know, we're going to, we're going to hire a guide and we're going to, you know, this is what I've always wanted to do just like you. And so, you know, a couple of decades ago, that's what we did. We went out and we had our first hunt, he and I together with a, a couple of friends and a guide and hooked completely head over heels hooked. And that that's kind of how the hunting started. And then right around that same time, I attended an, um, it's the Ohio Decoy Carvers and Collectors Association uh, show, their annual show. And I went with some friends and I saw a duck call and it was a Glenn Scobie. You're welcome, Tennessee. <laughs> and uh, I per that I still have that call. It was a Glenn Scobie duck call with a painted mallard on it in the box. And I brought it home and I put it on the shelf. And that was all she wrote. It just, yeah. I, 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 I think I always had a collecting bug. And that was it. I was, I just fell for it. Yeah. Uh, head over heels. So I, I've noticed a lot with collectors. Yeah, but most of them, they usually always have it. Did you collect anything before that? Were you always a kid who collected stuff? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, yeah. Um, rest my mother's soul. She, <laughs> she'd look at me crossways with that, you know, baseball card collection. I, believe it or not, I wasn't even old enough to have a, a beverage, but, you know, I had like a beer can collection. I mean, why? <laughs> I don't know why she tolerated that. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I always collected various things. And so I always had the bug, but nothing like this. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to uh, very early on meet a gent named Mike Paul. Mike was a very talented call maker uh, from Ohio, and he kind of took me under his wing. And I, I kind of credit him as one of my mentors because he introduced me to everybody. And oh my gosh, I've only forgot. I have one of Mike's calls that I wanted to bring to DU because Mike passed away last year. Yesterday was his birthday. Oh, wow. And I wanted Mike to be here with me. Oh, nice. Sorry, I'm getting choked up because mm. he's he was a really cool guy. Yeah. And, How old uh, were you when you met him? Oh, uh, gosh. Um, if I have to disclose, I'm 59 now. <laughs> this is the point where you're supposed to say you don't look that old. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it was close to 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he just introduced me to everybody. Um, I have, you know, over 20 of his calls in my collection. And um, I wanted Mike to be here with me. And uh, yeah, he was just a great, great guy. Yeah, that's a pretty call. He was one of the founders, the, one of the 32 founders of the Callmakers and Collectors Association of America. <clears throat> he was a past president. And um, he was the one that got me on the board for CCAA okay. and said, you know, I even told him, I said, Mike, I don't know if I'm ready. You know, he goes, you're ready. Yeah, this is, this is your time. Let's, let's do this. And he pushed me and encouraged me. And um, so I, I owe him so much. Yeah. I wanted him to be here. So Yeah. So you, did you meet him? At what point when you started collecting, did you meet him? Um, pretty early on. Yeah. It was. Again, so many things just like the planets just aligned. I was just so lucky, you know, to to meet him, uh, you know, to just 
have my son say, Dad, when are we going to do this, you know, this hunting thing together? Yeah, it's and, a different a, beginning than a lot of people. Yeah. It, it is. Usually you're brought up, you mm -hmm. know, in a multi-generational yeah. hobby. That didn't happen for me. I, I wish it had, but I didn't want to, I hate to use this phrase, but I didn't want to make that mistake again. Yeah, I didn't want this generation to go by without sharing it with him. Yeah. And so we've had a lot of fun together. Yeah. I don't know. I can see some parts of it being nice, especially with the collecting. Like, I mean, it's hard to be like, I think one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is getting started collecting and things like that with like younger people. But, you know, it's not a, it's not a cheap hobby. No. Uh, so Good it's, Lord. And when you're, you know, especially my age, when you have little kids and so much of your finances are going to all of that. Yeah, it's a hard time to pick it up. Like you can appreciate it and learn about. It. Maybe that's good that you have the time to read and learn about right. those things, but you don't really have the time to purchase and acquire. But it's kind of nice that you hit it at a point where you weren't like going through the 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 really hard part of parenting and like the you know where you're consumed and like and you've been in your career for a little while. And hey, make no mistake, I still had college tuition to pay for for, oh, for a couple a lot of, of kids us too. for yeah. him and his sister. Oh well, yes, let me. But like, do you know what I mean? Like, you're not having to do the the diaper changing and the exactly yes that part of life. You and, are correct, and you kind of can breathe a little bit, have your own hobbies a little more. At that point, because in yeah. the beginning, you're just consumed. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard to make space for yourself. I, in the beginning, I probably did more reading than yeah. buying. Yeah, you know, that's I tried great. To, I tried to just gather as much knowledge as I could. I really wanted to appreciate the tradition yeah. of the sport and learn about the history of it, you know, all the way back to, you know, the late 1800s when... You know, the first duck calls were, were essentially made and commercialized, you know, with Fred Allen and Charlie Ditto and, you know, uh, JT Beckart. And I mean, just, gosh, I get chills when I talk about these guys, you know, because they really started it all. Yeah. Did you have influences to, like, encourage you to read more or did you just kind of... That's just when you pick that first car, like, well, I need to learn about it. Was how that kind of go about? Yeah. You know, I've, I've always kind of had that... Um, the research, you know, bug in me too. Yeah. You know, like if I'm going to do this, we're going to do this right. We're going to go 110% at yeah. it. And and that's kind of what I've, what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so I knew, you know, knowledge is just um, monumental. Right. And especially in this, because, you know, so many times you can be offered a call, you can be in a trade situation with somebody. Mm -hmm. And if, if you don't have the knowledge about what you're getting, you know, it, it, um, it could certainly work against you. And I've had a few of those. I mean, you know, yeah. if you do enough of this and collecting, whatever it is, whether it's stamps or art or cars, you know, you're going to stub your toe a little. Yeah. And and that's okay as long as, long as the, the good ones outweigh the bad. Yeah. I, I want to come back to that. But one thing that's different about you, they're not all collectors, but from ones that we've had on the show um, that our listeners have heard about, is that you did not pick... Uh, like specific, you didn't pick a genre, you didn't pick a state or a call, like a maker. You have kind of collected a little bit um, across the board. Mm -hmm. um, how did, what influenced that decision? Was it, yeah, what influenced that decision? That's a great question. Um, 
I, I just, I love them all, I guess. And um, I respect the guys that will just collect, you know, a state or their state that they live in. I totally respect that. And I mean, you look at a guy like Mike Lewis, who, you know, has written a book purely on Arkansas calls and it's all in his backyard. Yeah. And, you know, and Mike took years of his life, you know, to research that and travel the country and take pictures of other people's collections. And that's cool. Yeah. But... You know, I have friends all over the country that are talented call makers. And there's been some tremendous call makers from many different states. And so I, I just, you know, there's an old phrase. Um, you collect what you like, and then you've got to like what you've collected. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how I just ran with it. Yeah. So I guess my question with that is because when they always, when you get a collector to give you advice, one of the first things a lot of them will say is, you know, pick, figure out what you like first first, like what you want. And that way you don't like buy something you don't really want in your collection or doesn't fit or make any mistakes. Like get to know exactly what it is you like and stick with it. So you didn't do that. You went a different route. And did you get flack for that at first? Did you make mistakes too? Yeah, a little bit. Sure. And, you know, there was a gentleman, um, his name was Greg Gerritsen. Greg lived in St. Louis. Greg's left this earth several years ago. And he was uh, also a, a kind of a mentor of mine. And, you know, Greg, he made me focus. Yeah. He, he was the guy that said, you need to take a rifle shot approach to this and not just a buckshot approach. Yeah. You know, why are you collecting that? You, you know, rather than buying 10 of those, save your money and buy one of those, yeah. you know, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and that's really kind of what I've tried to do. And it's hard because, you know, I was before I was about volume quantity and now, you know, I really love, um, quality. So with that in mind, have you sold to then upgrade to more better quality calls? Yeah. Many years ago, you know, you, you kind of, and please understand when I say I take from the bottom, I don't mean any of the call makers were bottom. Right, you know, right, right. But, you know, you take. Like a, it, may, it also could just not be a good example of that maker. Like yeah. it doesn't have to necessarily be that they're, the maker is bad. It just isn't as good of an example. You, of that you sell maybe the higher production, lower value mm -hmm. things to add to the top. So you take from the bottom, you add to the top. That's Collectors do that all the time right. in whatever they're collecting. And so, yeah, I did quite a bit of that um, back in the day. Yeah. Because you never know. Because some collectors are like, no, I'll never sell anything. But right, <laughs> yeah. And well, that's kind of what my collection is now. It's I call it a black hole. You know, you put something in it, never comes out. Yeah. <laughs> one day it'll have to come back out when you're gone. Well, and maybe might, he'll get it. That might be Adam's problem. He might problem actually one care. Day. Yeah. <laughs> so it's rare that the people inheriting collections care. Yeah. 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 So I, I think, think you might. It. I think you might be okay. Yeah. I think he, I think he gets it. <laughs> but you never know. Um, I told him. I said, listen, um, if I get hit by a pop truck, you know, tomorrow, I said, don't let your mom um, put, you know, have a garage sale. <laughs> so he, he gets it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure your friends won't let them have a garage sale either. No, they'll be. They'll all be after they'll it. They'll be on knocking on his door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's so funny because it just reminded me when uh, Bob's Pits was in the museum. Sure. He was literally selling them out of the case. Like people would walk up. <laughs> I didn't know them. that. Yeah, because he was get. He kind of was. You know, he had talk about like Mike as well. Like just 
I mean, so many Tennessee calls. That's all I did was Tennessee. So he was kind of getting rid of a lot of his collection at that time. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, people were walking up and buying it straight out of the case. I wish I'd have been here for that because, you know, Bob had good taste. And then, uh, and Howard was there and he'd be like, no, don't sell that one, that for that. Like they, (laughs) and they start arguing and they're like two little old women. They, they argue the whole time together. (laughs) They're they're peas in a pod, that's for sure. So yeah, it's interesting because I never, you're the first I've had that has like more of a, I guess what you would call like encyclopedic collection. National. Yeah, national. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you always get told with decoys, with everything, like focus, focus, focus. Mm -hmm. But I've never gotten to talk to somebody who did it the opposite, really, you know? And it didn't, it's not like it didn't, it worked out. Like, and there are other collectors that do that. Um, But yeah, it's interesting to hear. If somebody pushed me to the wall and said, you could only collect from one region, you know, so many of the original calls came from the you know Illinois River Valley mm-hmm. area, and I have a number of them, and I and I love them. Um, but you know, again, I, I don't want to I, I don't want to pinpoint, yeah, because I have really have a national presence in my collection. But you know, that's that's an area that's always intrigued me. And you know, again, here I go with the books. But Bob Christensen wrote mm-hmm. the Duck Calls of Illinois, and it's. It's a masterpiece on Illinois duck calls. You know, yeah. I admire these guys so much that take time out of their lives to photograph and research and, and then put it together and get a publisher and make these books. Oh, yeah. And so those books have been invaluable to me, you know, for, for research. They've also been invaluable for uh, mental stability sometimes because, <laughs> you know, I'll just go in my office, shut the door and, you know, and just flip through these books sometimes and they just, they take you back. Yeah. And it's such, I mean, it's like this a lot of things, but it's such a, um, it's not an easy thing to research these call makers. No. They weren't, I think it's even, it's almost, I don't know if that's true, but like it's, they're more reclusive than the decoy carvers in a lot of ways. Um, because some of these carvers did so little and they didn't really make a lot. Um, these guys made these for a purpose. Yes. And that was to call in and shoot ducks. Yeah. And they didn't ever anticipate that these things would be worth what they're worth today no. or that they'd be on people's shelves or that they were going into the duck, you know, Ducks Unlimited Waterfowl Heritage Center. No. The Heritage Center. It's like that, that wasn't their intention. So you'll laugh at this, um, just like a side note, speaking of that. We get a lot of their, because Arkansas and Tennessee, we're in Tennessee and Arkansas is just mm-hmm. across the river and we'll get a lot of the family relatives will be in the museum and see their grandfathers or uncles, so-and-so's call. And of course, these are all private collections that then return home to their collector's house and they will get mad at me. I will get phone calls about how I took their uncle's call off the shelf and how dare I? <laughs> right, and I have right. to be like, and then usually it's fine, but it's like, I have to explain like, well, we don't own the call. It's a collector's. And they're like, a collector? <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. I, and they're like, and then they'll want, sometimes they want the person's name. And I, I, I think it was definitely when I had Mike's collection, I'm like, He's not going to give you any of those calls. Right, like, right. Mike is a black hole. His stuff doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> exactly. So, but yeah, I found it so funny. So many of the, we've come across so many of the relatives of these people. And the other thing I find interesting about calls other than decoys is decoys, it's so much more of a handed down tradition. Mm-hmm. They were happy to teach 
carvers. Like it, they, it was, whereas I don't know if this is with every state. So this is my question. I don't know if you know the answer to it, but in Arkansas, they didn't really teach each other and they were kind of, they wouldn't teach each other. Mm -hmm. um, is it that way for most carvers, like call makers, or is it, or is that just like in Arkansas? And that's such an interesting thing, whereas decoys, it's the opposite. It's right. very much a handed down tradition. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, and, and, and by the way, you know, years ago, um, I really started crossing into decoys as well because yeah. who goes into the marsh without decoys in a call, right? right? So yeah. they go together, you know, they're peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. And, yeah. and so uh, I really became an appreciator of the decoys too. Again, same kind of tradition and history. Yeah. And the artistry is amazing. But to your question about, you know, do, do these guys share? I think it's a it's a case by case yeah. carver. I really yeah. do. Some some have been very open and yeah. said, "Look, you know, you want to do this. You know, here's how it gets done." And then there's guys that you know sort of protect their secret sauce. Yeah, you know? yeah. I feel like the more modern guys, the guys out there now, they're much more open. You bet. Um, but I've always heard like well, Mike because he he always talks about Starks and finally getting him to like he would never show him in person he would just have to go carve something bring it back and he would just tell him everything that was wrong with it then he had to leave and go right. again yeah this reminds uh. me of a great great story uh, one of my good friends uh very talented call maker fat past president of the cca troy taylor he lives okay. in uh, outside seattle washington and when troy <laughs> you know a hundred years ago when troy was you know making calls he really wanted to make high-end beautiful calls and he called paul england from minnesota um, and uh, Paul uh, was just didn't have enough time for him. And he said, look, you know, I appreciate your call. You need to call this guy, Jack Wilson. And, <laughs> and everybody that knows Jack Wilson's chuckling right now because Jack lived out in Flint, Michigan. Um, and Jack was just a hardcore, hard-nosed dude, but extremely talented. And Troy called him up and said, hey, you know, Mr. Wilson, my name's Troy Taylor. And Paul, Paul England said, you know, I, that I should give you a call about, you know, how to make calls. And the phone went silent. And Troy's like, oh my gosh, I hope this guy says something, you know? And he goes, he goes let me get this straight. He goes, let me guess, let me guess. He goes, you went down to Sears and Roebuck and you bought yourself a lathe and now you're a hot shot call maker, right? And Troy's like, uh, no, no, Mr. Wilson, no. And Troy's like, yeah, he pegged me totally, you know? And <laughs> so Jack was the kind of guy that would not share yeah, but Troy pastored him enough, and you know because he knew Jack was so talented, and finally Jack relented and said, "Okay, you know if you're going to do this, you're going to do it my way, and you're going to do it right." Yeah, and they began a long-term friendship. Yeah, and, that's funny. And now Troy turns out, you know, wonderful calls too. I have heard that a lot, even with decoy makers, that if you have to show them you're serious before they leave and, yeah. Rightly so, right? You can't right? just ask them. You have to show some actual gumption. I, and kind of, I don't blame them to yeah. a degree because this is their life's work. This right. is their passion. Um, and it's, many of them, it's what puts food on their table. And so yeah. don't come to me, and again, I'm putting myself in a, yeah. in a carver's, don't come to me and and not be serious about this like I am, you yeah, know? Yeah. So I get it when they, yeah. when they kind of take that tactic. No, I do too. I get that a yeah. lot, yeah. I'm glad that it's turned to be more of, a, like a little more hand down of a tradition instead of, mm -hmm. just, I mean, just for the fact to keep it alive. Um, that is the one thing I will say with calls versus decoys is, 
the intro into becoming a call maker is is there's a lot more like there's a lot more call makers out there and new call makers. It's it feels like they're doing a little bit better job on that end of recruiting new and younger makers and to kind of keep that tradition going. Yeah, and they're using you know so many different materials now too. I mean, back in the day, you know, what, what did they make calls out of walnut? Yeah, you know and. Um, you know, maybe, you know, just good old American hardwood, but walnut was very, you know, predominant. Now it's, you know, we talked about, you know, micarta back in the eighties. You couldn't, you know, that was the hot material at the time. Tom Turpin, you know, Memphis, 1930s and forties. Turpin is just a giant in this industry. He realized that wood was unstable, that it expands and contracts Mm -hmm. with moisture and temperature. And he wanted a more stable material and began um, experimenting with Bakelite, which yeah. is a you know a hard rubber material, and you'll see one of my calls is a checkered Bakelite. Tom Turpin is going into the Heritage yeah. Center. Um, very proud of that call, but yeah, and it started to evolve, and they started you know experimenting with different material, and now it's a, you know acrylic is is really big yeah. because it's super stable and hard, but you look back at you know the Bakelite old you know Philip Sanford Olt. You know, yeah. back in Illinois, he figured out that hard rubber, Bakelite, you know, is a really good material. And those calls, you could put it on your lanyard and go out in the marsh and call in ducks today. My dad actually used a D2. Really? He used a D2 his whole life. Outstanding. Yeah. That's really, he's <laughs> yeah. still today. Yeah, he, he's uh, got three left and he just, yeah, he doesn't let anybody touch him. He's got one people would probably want, but it's still in the box, but he's, no, that's to be used later. Yeah. I, I love that you know that. <laughs> so I, you know, I didn't know anything about it until, um, it's funny, and I've said this a million times on the show, so I'm sure the audience is sick of hearing it but the mississippi delta as rich in waterfowling history Mm -hmm. as it is we have no call makers we have no decoy carvers it is kind of a desert when it comes to actual historic waterfowling objects so i never thought about carved decoys or calls or any of that so his call really never registered to me sure in college was the first time i realized that it was old Mm -hmm. because they stopped making them (laughs) and he freaked out and bought a case and that's the only reason i even knew it was old is that he like ordered a case because the factory was shutting down or something that was good foresight yeah because he knew they like he's only he's blown that call since he was 15 years old. So, yeah. yeah, he went ahead and ordered a bunch and f- of them. And for some reason, those D2s have just gone crazy. Yeah, you know, know it's crazy. And they're taking the insides out of them. And well, yeah, what they do is they take the insert yeah. or the stopper out and they flip it around to the other side. And yeah. so now it's called a cut down. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah, it makes a slightly different sound, apparently. And yeah. um, it's it's the same call. They just change the configuration on it. But yeah. but yeah, they've really taken off, especially, you know, the keyhole, if you've yeah. heard that term. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is, to my knowledge, the keyhole was just a manufacturing thing so that they could more easily uh, grip and turn the insert. Oh. Um, it doesn't make the sound of the call any different, no. um, but some guys think it does. And yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I know it stops up all the time because he's always like, he has to blow in it the opposite direction to get it to like unstick. Well, yeah, and he might, you know, there's... He takes a lot to blow that thing. Maybe that breakfast muffin that he had, you know, is in there, some coffee's (laughs) in there, yeah. Whatever's in the duck blind. Yeah, but he won't blow anything else and it's funny. Um, And I didn't know that, yeah, I didn't realize that until a lot later in life Mm -hmm. when I was. But it's interesting, I want to go back... Because I have, I haven't really asked this question, and I I wonder what about Tom Turpin in particular? Because he's always been really interesting to me in that he experimented 
to such a large degree. Do you have an idea of why he was doing that? Like, what was the market in it for him to experiment like that? Or was it more of like, he just enjoyed experimenting in that? Like, I, it's very different from everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and there's guys that have uh, experimented as well. Um, and it's, it's interesting because there's, you know, the jury's out on some of his calls. Like, yeah. did he really make that? Because these guys didn't sign their stuff back then. Mm-hmm. A lot of them didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, you know, for example, I mentioned J.T. Beckhart, you know, all the way back to the late 1800s, he was um, uh, compression stamping his calls with right. his name. And that's cool because we know those, you know. Um, but, you know, Turpin, there's there's many calls where... And they're all over the place. They're all over. Yeah. But there's guys that have experimented with styles. There's guys that have experimented with materials. Um, I think that they were just always searching for that perfect call, that perfect sound. And, um, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever found the perfect sound, but yeah. why not keep searching? And so I, that's that's what I chalk it up to. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting in that because then you have like Dennison and somebody at the same time who has like made this, he's more of a marketing person at that point. Yeah, he's like, this is the call I make and this is how you use it. And right. he's sell, he's definitely a businessman on top of that. Whereas with Turpin, it's like, was that making him money doing that or was that just because he found it entertaining? Like, right. Yeah, yeah, it's such no. a different approach. I love that you know your calls too, Kate. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've been around them a long time. I know. So it's rubbing off on me. But, you know, like, um, and, and some of these guys, they just get so popular. You know, again, I'm going back to a, a famous Tennessee maker, Johnny Marsh. Yeah. Uh, you know, Johnny, you know, hunted Real Foot Lake every year. He would go down for the whole season and just mm-hmm. camp out, you know, Bill Nation's camp. And um, it got to the point where people wanted and desired Johnny's calls so much. He just couldn't take it. He just wanted to go hunt ducks and have fun with his friends while he was there. And, uh, um, it got to the point where, you know, um, his good friend, Larry Hickerson took over and he said, look, you know, I'll, I'll make these and I'll, I'll sign them. Um, but I need a hand selling this stuff because I don't want to be bothered with it. Right. And I, and I get that. Yeah. So a lot of these guys would take the marketing off their hands. They still love the calls and, and were terrific at making them. But, you know, don't make me do the business side. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, they don't like to be called this, but I mean, they're artists and yeah. yeah, and craftsmen. So that's probably, it doesn't come usually natural to a lot of those guys who Absolutely. are doing it that way. Yeah. They were duck yeah. hunters and, and artists and yeah. Uh, yeah but they don't th- like that word. Right. <laughs> but then there's that business side of things. Yeah. 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 Whereas if you're going to sell calls, how are you going to do it? You know, it's right. going to be one at a time. Some of these guys just, they made them and they gave them away to friends. Mm-hmm. They never sold a, a call for a dime, you know? Yeah. They just gave them away as gifts, and um, and that's great, too. Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. about a little bit about the Callmakers Association and what that was like in that role. So how long do you serve as, is it the president? Yeah. Okay, so how so long does that last? There's term limits on a okay. couple of the positions, one of which is the president. Okay. The president has a two-year term yeah. and the vice president has a two-year term. Secretary has a two-year term. Um, and does I, it, do you go through like vice president 
president secretary? Is that how it Yeah, I started out as secretary. Oh, you started out as secretary then vice. Okay. Yeah, I started out as secretary under Howard Harlan okay. and um, skipped right over VP and went oh, right, really? right to the presidency. Okay, so like at DU, you kind of have, you have to move through it. Sure. Yeah, like you have to be a senior vice president, senior, yeah, VP, then you become, you get selected to be mm-hmm. VP, which then becomes president, which then becomes chamber of the board. And, and that's the standard the progression. Yeah, right. we have like a little... Right. Order. Yeah. Yeah. So mine was a little more baptism by fire, you know, yeah. and, um, <laughs> but I served on the board for uh, about 10 years okay. and in, in the role of the president and role of the secretary. But then I was also the treasurer for a long time. Okay. And so, um, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And I kind of, it was, I was a little remorseful when I left the board. I mean, yeah. but I thought, you know, 10 years is good. Yeah. 10, you know, there was a reason that they have term limits is to get new blood in. And I get that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I thought I- I'm good with 10 years, but um, it's a wonderful organization that's committed to, you know, the promotion and education of, of call making, you know, here in the United States. And um, call making is our, is our own, you know, as Howard says in his books, it's the great American folk art. You know, it it, it, it didn't start in Europe. Yeah. It's it's here. We can call it our own. And that's really cool uh, from a folk art standpoint. It is. I've, and I've mentioned it on here before, too. I mean, call making more so even than decoys. Like, there is the random decoy. But waterfowling in general mm-hmm. is an American thing. It's it, the way we do it here. Is so much different than anywhere else. It's kind of very, it's strictly, it's very unique to America. And amen, sister. Ba- baseball, apple pie, and call making. Yeah. <laughs> Duck calls. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's a very American thing. And, you know, and we've talked about that. Like, the, one of the interesting things that we always talk about here is like how in Arkansas and Tennessee and Mississippi and Louisiana is different, but North Louisiana, there were no decoys, it was just calls. And for a long time, and because we hunted flooded timber, and Mm -hmm. once you got them in close enough with a call, you didn't need a decoy. Right. (laughs) So, and and quite frankly, you uh, know, back so different. Back, you know, market hunting uh, was outlawed in 1918. Right. And then. Guys were like, okay, that we're, we're still good because we can use live ducks as, yeah. as you know, our call ducks as they yeah. called them. And these these were prized possessions, you know, these, and they took care of them just like a hunting dog because, um, you know, they would, these call ducks would sit there with a, with a, a, a neck collar or, yeah. a, an, an, you know, a leg weight or whatever, holding them in position to call down the ducks. 1935, that was outlawed. You can, and so they're like, okay. What do we and and I just think that 1930s and 1940s was really kind of the golden era of call making because you you couldn't market hunt anymore you couldn't use live ducks you needed a strong decoy rig and you needed to know how to call yeah or you weren't going to shoot ducks no you know now I love hearing the stories from the old timers about how the sky's blackened with ducks and you know I, gosh I wish I could go you back also to also think though right there in the 1930s and 40s is when we had the biggest the lowest duck numbers in the country right yeah so not only were you not able to use live ducks or decoy well you can use decoy or like the punt guns or anything there weren't that many ducks to be shooting yeah market hunters took care of that um, didn't they yeah and then that's the drought right then, you know, the, yeah. the dust bowls right then that's too. right so it's all it all kind of culminates into this we have to fix the problem sort of situation. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And But yeah, you talk about like, we have the video at the museum, which you'll see of, um, it's not Coca-Cola, but it's out in Arkansas and it looks like static. 
on the screen, but it's not. It's ducks. Oh, that's the yeah. uh, famous Claypool? Claypool, thank uh, you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Love that picture. Yeah, and it's you we can, have the video of it. You can walk across the backs of the ducks yeah. to the other side of the pond, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a cool pic. It's a cool video. It was like an old field and stream mm -hmm. yeah, movie they did, and it's really neat, but it's in the museum, and but it does. It looks like static. Yeah, and it it's, does. It's ducks. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, no, they don't like that anymore. It's like there's a problem <laughs> with your TV screen. Yeah, it's a it's a neat video. It's an old Nash Buckingham field and stream. Like he's hunting on there with his wife. Yeah, it's a cool yeah. Thing. Yeah, so what was it like? So kind of just because I don't really know, as president of the Callmakers Association, what kind of role did you have to play in that? Like what is your job over those two years like what actually do you have to do yeah it's kind of you know as director yeah. you know you're kind of the the maestro you, you you know you try and delegate as much as you can but um you know let's face it it's a volunteer position yeah, so and there's no paid staff for the call uh, next gosh week. no <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah, right yeah i mean when you go to a, a show you yeah. know and we had you know our big chicago show yep. um we have real foot and we have the NWTF that we partner with, and um, and so when you go to these shows, you're you're paying for your lodging, you're paying mm -hmm. for your your trip, your you know food, whatever. It's so there's nothing, yeah. There's no there's no paid position, um, and that's fine because I did it for the love of the the, yeah. the the industry, but or the love of the craft. But um, we we have a. Uh, there's a, a quarterly newsletter that goes okay. out, so you've got to constantly get articles for that. Yeah. Um, and that was fun. I didn't yeah. mind that. And I, I contributed articles too, which was great. I got to meet some incredible people. I did articles on just great guys, you know, great guys that have become friends. You know, Mike Paul was my my first mm -hmm. article. And then, you know, great call maker, Buddy Duke, Tennessee, you know. Um, Buddy's become a good friend. Um, Sonny Bayshore, who's just ugh, guys, I think he just turned 89 and uh, last couple of weeks ago. And he's still making knives, creating fish decoys. He's a scrim shander, uh, turkey box calls. I mean, there's nothing this guy can't do. Um, and so I love doing the articles on them and learning about, you know, their craft. And just like you're doing with me, we're having a yeah. conversation yeah. and then I put it in paper. And then it's coordinating the shows, you yeah. know, um, so, like, at Chicago, y'all basically just have the meeting, right? And then a little bit of a show. It's a big, it's our biggest decorative call show of the year. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, Brian Byers has been ter terrific in running that yep. show for a long time. Um, he's had a lot of help in the past with great guys like, you know, Bob Weisman, another Tennessee guy. Yeah. And talented call maker. So, yeah, it, it, um, it, 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 takes, a, it takes a group. To, yeah. to put these shows together, but but someone's got to be there, you know, sort of directing the whole thing, and that's that's the yeah. One. So one thing I find interesting about it, and and I think other groups would want to replicate it. Um, I mean, y'all have barely any presence anywhere, but yet you still manage to recruit so many people for like. And I'm thinking in particular to collecting groups like. And what can you attribute that to? Is that just the call maker community and collecting community? Is that just word of mouth that keeps having more people come in or? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, social medias have a big impact on it. Yeah. You know, because the call makers and collectors Association of America has an annual due of 35 bucks. Yep. I have to I pay for it. To some people, they're like, why, why would I 
pay that when I can just go on Facebook and see all these different social media groups? I, you know, to a degree, I get that. But those groups aren't organizing the shows. They're not promoting the call makers like, call make, like CCAA is. Um, and so they're not disseminating, you know, information on a quarterly well, basis. So that's like what I was going to say is, um, yes, the information you know you're getting from the newsletter is correct and research. Whereas, and I'm on the, on the Facebook groups as too, but yeah, you don't know. It's riddled with like misinformation or yeah. opinion um, that you don't really know what you're getting. Whereas if this, you know, yeah. yeah. And it was always a struggle, you know, how yeah. are we going to get more members? Yeah. You know, that was the big conversation every year. Oh yeah. Of um, course. It's, it's any organization that's a nonprofit is always, you know, wondering how are you going to get more members? And so that, that's always a struggle. Yeah. And again, with social media out there, it's almost like you can get it for free, um, but you're not getting anywhere near the value that you get by joining CCAA. Yeah. Y'all seem though to do better than, I feel like y'all do better than a lot of them. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I wonder, I wonder why. I guess it's just got to be call makers and collect. You want the secret sauce, don't you? <laughs> no, I just want to know what's different about the call community versus the, de like what's happening there. To mostly because I want it to happen across the collecting community. Um, you know, like one of the things I work, I've been working with North American decoy collectors to try to promote them through this and help them with, you know, social media and stuff like that. And because, and let and kind of kind of get our audience to help build their audience because mm -hmm. you know just to keep collecting going. I don't want to you know we just want, we just wanted to keep going. So it's just kind of trying to figure out what there is to help grow that community as well. It just yeah. seems to have they seem to really have, and this might actually just be that the entry level into call collecting is much lower than it is into decoy collecting. That's well and said. that might be it. It might mm -hmm. just be that the financial entry mm -hmm. is lower and that younger people can get into call collecting um, versus with decoys, you tend to have to have some, you know, some extra income lying around. And there's a lot of great decoy groups out there. Oh, I belong great. to Midwest Decoys, Great Lakes Decoy mm -hmm. Association, Ohio Decoy Carvers and Collectors. And I, I support these groups and, um, you know, I attend their shows and, and they're wonderful. Um, but um, I think people are very willing to pay for something when they perceive value in it. Yeah. And so you have to continue. And that's the challenge, you know, for every group out there. You have to continue to create value in your product. And so um, you can't just say, hey, you know, we're this group and you should join us. And it's yeah. like, well, why? why? You know, give me a reason. And so, um, yeah, it's the education. It's the promotion of the the decoy carvers or the call makers. Um, it, it's the whole uh, it's it's the sum of the whole, and yeah. and and so, I think when you when you put together a good product and and you say, you know, you're part of something special, I think people are willing to pay for that. Yeah, I hope we can figure out a way to help them out too. So let's talk about decoys. What do you collect? I don't even know. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a, you know a national presence, okay. just like my calls too. So uh, what was your first decoy? Man, you know, I could tell you what my first call was. <laughs> <laughs> that speaks volumes. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of ashamed now. What, you know, let me come back to that. <laughs> what is the first one you remember? Um, well, 
Um, probably one of my favorites is uh, is an Elliston canvas back from the late 1800s. I was it's gonna just, guess the Illinois, uh, Mississippi River, yeah, Illinois River, yeah, Valley, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and um, it's just got you know these bold you know big cheeks on it and a great paint scheme and just it's got a great patina from age over mm -hmm. the years and I mean Elliston's just to me you know we call them the Big Four in Illinois. Yeah. It's you know. Um, well, that it, Catherine Elliston paintwork is yeah, hard to yeah, get. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there's, you know, Purdue and Graves and, and, and Elliston, some might say, you know, Shane Heider. Um, and so, you know, the, he's one of the greats. And I just love that decoy just because it, it just looks super old and it's, it's got the patina. And, but, you know, um, decoys really were big East Coast as well. Oh, yeah. And, and quite frankly, you know, East Coast has a lot of diver ducks. You don't call it divers, no. you know. There's no reason, so you have you don't to even have... shoot them. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. The people might get mad at me about that. Uh, but. <laughs> I was about to go down that rabbit hole with you, but yeah, <laughs> I'm with you. We get diver ducks that come into our spreads. It's okay, I'm spoiled. I, I can recognize my privilege. <laughs> I, I, I'll do respect to the divers. I'd much rather put a puddle duck on the table. Yes. Yeah, but you know the. There's beautiful, incredible decoys that have come out of the East Coast. Oh, yeah. Incredible carvers, you know, like uh, Lemon Steve Ward, you know, uh, Joe Lincoln. Um, I mean, I could give you a hundred yeah. examples and they're they're gorgeous. And I've, you know, I've continued to try and find them and bring them into my collection and, 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 and covet them. They're just great. Yeah. yeah. Do you do paintings as well? Do you have any flat art? Um, not much, a yeah. little. Okay. Um, yeah, a little bit. Um but more for decor, less yeah. for collecting. But, you know, as as Howard Harlan says, everything is collectible. <laughs> and so look out, you know. I mean, I'm sure if I got into <laughs> paintings that it would just take off. And I I don't want to go down that. Yeah, they've yeah. gotten really expensive all of a sudden. <laughs> yes, they have. <laughs> um, I have a funny Howard story. So and we were talking about when Bob was um, taking his stuff out of the museum and the, I don't know what it is about Howard Harlan, but he just appears places and collections come to him. Like, I don't I don't know how he does it, but we were, first of all, he's been trying to, forever trying to get me to put his minnow bucket collection in the museum. And I'm right. like, Howard, what does a minnow bucket have to do with waterfowl? So, no. I, <laughs> but I was he has a giant minnow bucket collection. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. I, I had the great honor of being at his house and he showed me his collection and I'm like, Howard, what's with the minnow buckets? Oh, yeah, I've got the largest minnow bucket collection in America. I'm like, okay. He goes, that's not, he goes, there's more out in the garage in the barn. And I was like, what's with the whistles? Oh, I have the largest whistle collection. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's got it deep. Collects everything. Yeah. And I'm like, what's with the shotguns? Oh, those are, you know, Holland and Holland. Those are Purdy's. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they're so, beautiful. And and yeah, and uh, then we haven't even gotten to the calls yet. No. And I'm like, I got to wade through all this other stuff. So he is... Uh, guns were in the museum as well when his calls were here and we were at the rendezvous yeah uh, eating lunch we should be there tonight yeah eating lunch this was like during the height of the pandemic like everything had just opened we were probably the only people in the rendezvous and he went to the bathroom and he didn't come back for like 30 minutes and Bob's getting all grumpy because he's been there too long and he's waiting on Howard. Bob's grumpy? <laughs> so, and next thing we know, um, I, uh, Ray Carroll was with him and with Bob, he helped, he was helping Bob with the thing and he was like, I'll go find him. So he went so, goes off and found him and Howard has somehow met the owner, the new owner of the rendezvous and she is showing him a gun collection they have 
upstairs. Of course. Yeah, and he's negotiating maybe buying all of it. I, I, I've, you know... I was like, how I, would you find... I've heard stories about, you know, how he would hear about a really rare call, you know, in Missouri, in Illinois, wherever it was. His truck was packed that afternoon and he was already on the road, you know, and he would camp out in that town. He would get a hotel for two, three days, whatever it took to get the family to sell him that call. I mean, that's how hardcore this guy was. Yeah. And and I always remembered that. And it's it's caused me to, you know, jump on an airplane and go buy a collection somewhere. Yeah. It's caused me to, you know try to knock down walls to, to, you know, go and see other things and, and talk to people about their collections. And, and so I always remember stories like that, that, well, if, if he did it and that's the way he did, then maybe I have to as well. And it's hard, you know, you got to take time away from family and, and work and, you know, you're, you're going to Nebraska for what? <laughs> well, I heard about this little town that has a collector there and he's looking to sell and, that's what I, I, you know, I've done that. Well, I get it. I run a lot. So I, I have my own crazy hobby. Do you have a story of how you found one that you didn't expect? Do you have anything like that? The not unexpected fell in your lap. Yeah. Got any of those? Boy, you know, th there's times where um, somebody will put something on an auction or like eBay, for example, they have no mm -hmm. idea what it is and they'll just use a buy it now. And the pictures will be real grainy and you can't really tell what it is. But, you know, you're like, well, if it's, if it's what I think it is, it's a home run. If it's not, then, ah, you know, you, you win some, you lose some. And, you know, I, I've had a few of those where you just, you the buy it now on on the thing is 150 bucks and you get it and you're like oh my gosh you know uh, i can't believe this happened so i don't know if i could point to one specific one but I, i've had a number of those where or you know somebody walks up to you at a show and that's happened somebody walked up to me um with a doll emmerich doll emmerich is you know just made these classic very few uh illinois you know call maker and um and uh, walked up to me with a doll Emmerich and wanted to sell it. Now, I, I have the doll Emmerich call that's pictured in Bob Christensen's book, Duck Calls of Illinois. And I never thought I'd get another doll Emmerich. And here somebody's offered me another one to buy and at a reasonable price. And so, you know, those are just little wins that you just take home and just keep smiling all day. You know, he was happy with what I paid him. I was delighted to get another doll Emmerich call and everybody won. Yeah. So I love that when everybody wins, you know. Yeah, Ryan, when he was on here, he always likes to talk about, you know, he when he was in college, it was the glory days of eBay. True. As he talks about very true. those early days of eBay, how yeah. it was so great. And now he's like, you can't find anything on eBay. No, because everybody knows everything. You can research. Even if you don't know duck calls, you can just, you know, research. Type in what you think it is and you'll oh, get yeah. articles. Oh, yeah. I mean, even with like all the, um, especially now that calls, I mean, with decoys, you could do this for a while because they were auctioned off for so long. There's so many auction houses. But now that calls are making into the major auctions, mm -hmm. you can actually look up auction prices on them. You can actually, That's right. they're way easier to appraise now than they used to be. Yeah. And for CCAA, uh, you know, I, I helped with identification and valuation of, of calls as well. And so, you know, if, if somebody, you know, uh, didn't know what they had, it was passed down from a previous generation or from, you know, uncle so-and-so um, found this in an attic or I found this in a box in the barn, whatever it was, can you tell me what this is? 
you know, it seems that people have become smarter about that where um, they know the information's out there. They just have to go find it. And um, rather than, well, I'll be glad to get 50 bucks for this old thing. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's a hundred people that'd be glad to give you 50 bucks. In fact, you might even add a zero or two to that yeah. and they'd still be glad to give it, give you the money. But yeah. I think there's, there's plenty of ways now to identify and value calls, decoys, whatever it is, um, because of the groups, because of social media, because of eBay, um, the internet. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, Ryan's comment about the the glory days of of call collecting via eBay. Yeah, he's he's pretty accurate. <laughs> That's how he did the majority of his early collecting because mm -hmm. he was yeah young when he did that. But you know, and again, uh, gosh, I'm gonna blow his head up. But you know, Ryan's really a he's a he's he's um he's a scholar of of call making. Oh, he's and, who I text pictures to when someone says, "Hey, wants to donate to DU." But, I'm like. But he crap realized, or not crap. <laughs> right. He, but he realized long ago that knowledge is power. Yeah. And especially in the collecting world. And, um, you know, I never had a, a, a photographic memory. You know, I've had friends that have. I have friends that are doctors that are like, yeah, I didn't really study. I'm like, you're a medical doctor. How no, did I'm you? I'm not that way. They're either, like, no. no, I didn't really have to. It all kind of, I read something once and I, that wasn't me. And so my books were invaluable. I studied them. I, I talked to people, you know, um, I, I did my homework. I like to think so. Yeah. And I would like to tell, which I, I always end it, which I'll finish kind of in this topic, but I learn more from talking to y'all and being around collectors and carvers and their collections and asking questions. I get more from that than I do reading the book. Like I right. just, for some reason, I'm able to absorb that information versus... Mm -hmm reading the books. And I think it has a lot to do with, I mean, I don't know if I've told you this, but I have ADHD and the way those books are written, it's tough. Yeah. It's dry. Can be. Very fact oriented. So it's so tough to get through them. And I can, I use them for, to look up information, to check information, mm -hmm. like, you know, more of a kind of a, just a resource tool. But I get more from conversations than I do from anything else. And I always recommend people who want to get into this is to go to shows yeah. and talk to people. You bet. Yeah. Like, that's the major, that's always what I say. It's like, I get more from that and people are nice. Yeah. And you know, a lot of <laughs> like, you know, younger collectors every once in a while will ask me, you know, what should I, what should I collect? What should I go get? And you know, first thing I tell them is books and they look at you like you're crazy. I'm like, look, you need knowledge. You really, in, in the collecting world, and I don't care what it is you collect, you kind of need three things. You need, you need the passion. And a lot of these guys have that, or they wouldn't be talking about it. Right. You need knowledge, and I hate to say it, but you need a couple pennies in the bank. You know, I mean, let's face it. If you're going to collect quality, you know, historic things, whether it's cars or stamps or duck calls or decoys, um, these things, you know, it takes a little bit of money. And so, you know, knowledge, experience, excuse me, knowledge, passion, and, and a couple of bucks. Um, usually guys have two of the three. Yeah. You know, they might have the money. They don't have the knowledge. They have the passion, and boy, you know, there's there's a lot of people looking for those guys. Yeah. Um, th some people will have um, the knowledge and the passion, but you know, they have a young family. They're just starting out in life and their career, and they don't have a lot of the money. So, call collecting, like many collect, like like collecting in general, is really kind of a it's an evolution. You, know, you kind of start out collecting what you can. 
Yeah. And then you get, you gain experience and knowledge and you collect what you want or, you know, and what's really, truly important you know, valuable. And, um, I think a lot of these guys start out, uh, and, and I, I don't mean to label anyone, but you know, they'll collect, you know, just a ton of, you know, high production, low value stuff, maybe many things that are made on a CNC machine, right? Yeah. They're not at the hands of an artist. They're not at the hands of, you know, someone that hand carved and hand painted that, mm-hmm. you know, with their own eyes and hands. And, and then, you know, they think that they've put together a collection and then five, 10 years go by and, and they try to sell that and, because they're trying to graduate and they realize that they're getting as much or less than what they originally paid. Right. And so um, quality things hold their value, they weather the storms and they appreciate over time. Again, I don't care what it is that you're collecting, but that's kind of a, you know, a, a standard progression in, in, in collecting anything. Yeah, so that gives me a question, brings me a question up. One of the things that they talk about is like starting with contemporary carvers because you kind of know what you're getting. The entry level is a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. But I would think... I didn't... I never really thought about this until we just started talking about it, but with decoys, it's a little different because you know what they're who's hand carving decoys right like that's very easy to know like the difference between you know what's being turned you know it's with calls there's not as much of um there's not uh, what's the word to say like this there's not this mentality about how you a, a call is done versus a decoy. Like, if, oh, I, I hand chopped my decoy out. If you didn't hand chop it out, then it's not, mm-hmm. you know, a hand carved decoy. Whereas calls, it's a little bit different. It's it's okay to turn it on the lathe and then they do, but then they, you know, do the detail by hand and mm-hmm. things like that. So if you're going into this and you're saying like, okay, I might just start with some of these contemporary guys. How would you necessarily decipher who is doing the finishing and the more hand-done stuff versus these guys that are kind of just doing everything on the machine. Like, is that something that's easy to figure out for as a new collector or is it Well, let's, di- let's differentiate. Um, okay. Making calls on a lathe is very customary. Right. That's I mean, normal. Yeah. yeah. It's I very mean, customary. Yeah. I mean, all the way back to the early 1900s, you know, yeah. when, when the lathe was created because... Let's face it, a call for the most part is a tube. Yeah. And it's it's a cylindrical object and it can be created on a lathe. Whereas a decoy has, you know, peaks and valleys and grooves and, you know, uh in you know, incised wingtips and you know, and and it's just it's it's you can't turn a decoy on a lathe. So um Well, very, they turn they do turn them, but yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Some they, people they do rough yes. them they, out. They rough them out, yeah. Yeah. But um uh but, you know, a, a CNC machine call is a little different okay. where, you know, you put a block of wood or a piece of acrylic, you know, on a lathe and you push some buttons and the machine does it all for you. Okay. That's the difference. Okay. Where, you know, and you can turn out hundreds, if not thousands of calls that way, okay. and they're not made by the hand of an artist. Okay. So that's the difference. So how would you, I guess, I mean, you would look at things like um, checkering and that sort of thing to kind of be able to tell the what's CNC versus not. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sure, you can still, you know, uh, afterward, you can still checker a CNC call, um, but you pretty much know. And and you know the artists, you know the call makers that are, you know, doing it all by hand and they're very proud of that work. So, yeah, you you can definitely pick that out. 
Yeah, because I, I just never really thought about it because there's just so much more production in call making versus, mm -hmm. I mean, in, in wood decoys, is not that much production. Like, you can figure out who's doing what pretty easily. Sure. Um, and I just never thought about, like, having, as a new collector who maybe doesn't have any of that knowledge, and you're saying, oh, I'll do contemporary calls because that's just easier for me to collect right now. They'll appreciate, most likely, they'll have a better chance of appreciating in value versus... You know, um, and there's also something to be said for being able to meet the person, shake the hand of yes, the person okay. that made it, you know, and maybe even develop, you know, a, a, a personal friendship with that person, you know, and, and potentially buy more from them as time goes by. So, um, yeah, I've, I've got a number of calls that, you know, the call maker was a friend of mine. They're not they're not walking this earth anymore. And, and I really value that call for the friendship that I created with them. Yeah. Um, so that, that's, I can't, I can't go back in time and shake Johnny Marsh or Tom Turpin's <laughs> hand, you know, just can't. And, and so it is nice to know the, the yeah. maker and, and possibly develop a friendship. Right. And that just brings you back to the importance of shows and yeah. attending those things and kind of be part of that community. Yeah. And I, and I hope that, the shows, some people will say that, you know, they're a thing of the past. I, I really hope not because just like working remotely, you know, uh, and I, I tell, told my kids this, you know, when, you know, when the pandemic hit and everybody went remote and we learned a lot during that, but I, just starting out in my career, my, the opportunity to stick my head in a senior person's door and ask a question, to have that senior person put a hand on my shoulder and say, that's a great question. Let's go discuss it over lunch. You know, you can't get that working remotely. Just through osmosis, you know, you can learn so much. Yeah. And so, yeah, and it's just like the shows. You know, you go to the shows, you observe, you talk to people, you might meet someone that says, you know, you should give me a call about that later. Um, the friendships, uh, the connections you can make at those shows, you know, really can be valuable. Yeah, I agree. All right, so before we go, before I let you go, because we've done this for a while now, is there anything that for any advice that we haven't really given to like new collectors? Always ask collectors to do that. Is there any advice you haven't already talked about that you'd like to share? Um, I, I probably would just say don't be intimidated by it, you know, by quality. You know, quality will always weather storms. It will hold its value. Try to learn gain experience, you know, that if I gave any advice that that was, that's what it would be. So, you know what you're buying, you can appreciate it forever. Those are things that have, you know, little mantras, little sayings that have really helped me. And, you know, I, I it's, it's, I've made so many friends. Uh, I've met so many people. I've learned so much in this crazy craft and this collecting. And, um, you know, I'm just so grateful for it. And, um, you know, somebody, uh, I, I once, uh, read a quote that said, never make fun of a person's passion. It could be the very thing that saves them from the world. <laughs> That's a really nice way to say it. <laughs> um, all right. Is there anything else you want to add before we go to our audience? Just, uh, I'm so honored to be here. I mean, what DU does for waterfowl and conservation, um, preserving our habitat, it, it all goes together. You know, my, my little collection is just just a small little tiny corner of of the big picture and um, I'm just so honored to be here and in the presence of, of, of DU and and so many people that have had their collections in the Heritage Center uh, I'm just gratitude is I guess is what I would say so thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and um, share what I've put together with the rest of the world 
Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for coming on the show, too. This was fun. Thank you to our producer, Chris Isaac, and thanks to you, our listeners, supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned.